God be merciful to me, a miscalculator. So legendary preacher Tom Long titles a now famous Theology Today article on the topic of sin in the contemporary church. God be merciful to me, a miscalculator. In the last few decades, Long writes, the meaning of sin has diminished and deteriorated. Sin has been demoted. The title of the article alone is priceless. God be merciful to me, a miscalculator. In rereading Long's much-celebrated article, I can't help remembering my dear friend and late mentor, James Dunn, the longtime executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee in Washington, D.C. Dunn was one day talking about sin during a course I took with him in divinity school, and extemporaneously he began to reminisce with our class on something that was once said to him at church. At the Metropolitan D.C. Church, where he was then serving as a Sunday school teacher, one of the members of his class interrupted him mid-sentence to say, Brother Dunn, surely you don't mean sin. You're talking about our ontological limitation, right? To which Dunn immediately replied, No, I'm not talking about our ontological limitation. I'm talking about sin. For those who know and remember, James Dunn was one of a kind. There's a famous scene from Andy Griffith's show where Barney is at church and he falls asleep during the sermon only to later after the service shake the preacher's hand and say, that's just one subject you can't talk enough about, sin. Well, the humor lies in the fact that the sermon had nothing to do with sin at all. But what James Dunn found and what Tom Long found and what so many of us pastor types today find is that Barney was wrong. Turns out that as a preacher, sin most certainly is a subject that we can talk too much about. Once upon a time, writes Long, sin was a majestic word, a necessary word. A word without which we could not describe our humanness. A word that in a single syllable could both climb giddily to the heights of human folly and crawl into the fearsome depths of human ruination. Meanwhile, as both C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton put it, talk of sin was that without which the Christian faith was rendered utterly unintelligible. For if there's not a brokenness, these writers point out, there's no need for a divine fix. If there is no inherent lack, there's no need for divine fulfillment. In short, if there is no sin, there's really no need for a Savior. This was once all taken for granted. But as Tom Long says, we've grown increasingly reluctant in the contemporary church to talk about our brokenness in terms of sin, and increasingly reluctant to talk about our givenness and proneness to error in terms of sin, 
And thus, we've relegated the word sin to superficiality, letting slick-haired television preachers trivialize its meaning while offering overly simplistic answers and absolutions for it. But the truth is, there's nothing simple at all about sin. For sin, at least so far as the Bible conceives of it, is not a list of individual improprieties, as Paul Tillich writes, saying, it is instead an inherent condition, sin singular with a capital S, rather than sins plural with a lowercase s. And as such, sin then demands our honest self-assessment about it, along with our sincere contrition at the things it wreaks in our lives and in the world. As Christians, we must be willing to talk about and to confess our sin. So am I making you all uncomfortable enough yet? Such is the 21st century situation when it comes to talking about sin in the church. It now feels somehow out of place almost, dissonant, makes us uncomfortable, start to squirm a little bit. This is a problem. And it's a problem increasingly acknowledged throughout all quarters of the Christian church. For you see, I have thus far purposely quoted conservative Christian leaders and centrist Christian leaders and progressive Christian leaders, all of whom are acknowledging that without the language of sin in the Christian church and without the attendant practice of confession in the Christian church, we lose something not only indispensable, but in fact something absolutely central to the Christian faith. Now, having said so much about sin, truth is, this sermon's not really about sin at all. It's really about prayer, specifically about prayers of confession. But the point that I'm trying to make is that without a real understanding of and acceptance of sin, then talk of confession becomes quite literally nonsensical. If we have no sin as Christians, then what exactly are we confessing? And what's more, if we don't think we need forgiveness from without, we don't open ourselves up for the possibility of absolution and liberation within. Which leads me back to last week's sermon and to my remarks on recent Disney films like Frozen 2. Y'all remember all of that, right? As you'll recall my saying, in films such as this, the ethic being taught, being put forward, being promulgated, is that our real self is hidden inside of us and is all the while calling to us, and it is our moral responsibility to listen for this internal call and then to follow it wherever it may lead. Now, as I said last week, and this is the crucial salient point, here in this view, there is no external call. This is not God or something from without 
calling forth our unique selves, trying to pull that out of us. Instead, this is our own inner voice calling out to us. And our job is to realize this. Just as Queen Elsa realizes this and so sings, you were the one you've been waiting for. Follow all of this? The idea in this Disney ethic is that all of this time you thought there was a voice out there, something out there, someone possibly out there, but really it's just in here. The point being, you therefore are a law unto yourself. Nothing outside of yourself can help you determine whether you're on the right path or the wrong, whether what you've done is good or bad, whether you're living your best life or not. Only you can really determine that. But if you'll listen closely enough, these films teach us, you can't go wrong. You can't possibly do bad if you listen carefully enough. You can't possibly do anything other than live in accordance with your best life. A commitment to anything external is the problem, these teach. According to any voice, acceding to any voice or being or constraint from without, this is the problem. Following the internal is the only salvation. Or as Queen Elsa says, describing the liberating power of her own inner voice, I hear a voice and I know it's good. And here's the point. There is all the difference in the world between saying with Queen Elsa that our own inner voice is entirely good, that it is infallible, that it is pure and utterly trustworthy. There is all the difference in the world in saying this and saying with Orthodox Christian teaching that our own inner voice is damaged and impaired, far more fallible and untrustworthy than we care to admit but that God is good and that God created us to be good and that God is calling us back to our best and truest selves and that though we continue day in and day out to err on this course, God nonetheless stands always at the ready to hear our confessions and grant us forgiveness each time we fall short. So all the difference in the world in those two things. Now the psalmist knew this, of course. The psalmist was under no misconception that inside of him was pure goodness. That were he to listen to his own inner voice, he would thereby find peace and liberation. Thus the psalmist cries out in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God! according to your steadfast love. 
For my sin is ever before me, he confesses. I know it, he's saying. Therefore, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me, restoring thereby unto me the joy of my and your salvation. These are not the words of one who thinks that his own inner voice is infallible. These are not the words of one who thinks that all that is within him is pure goodness. No, instead, these are the words of one who knows that try as he might, he continues to trespass daily against not only his own best intentions, but also against the divine imperative to treat others the way that he'd want to be treated and to care for God's good creation as God appointed him to care for it and to care for himself in his own life in healthy and self-honoring ways and to all the while reflect praise back to God by living in harmony with who and what and how God designed him to be. And so it is that he then says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouths will declare your praise. For the sacrifice acceptable to you is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not turn away. A broken and contrite heart. Dear family, there is no doubt that the language of sin has been often misused and misdirected throughout church history, consigning groups and individuals to lives of subjection and repression that have nothing to do with the liberating message of the Christian gospel. There is no doubt. This critique of the way the language of sin has been used throughout church history is spot on. But this doesn't mean that the problem is with the concept of sin itself. It simply means that the problem is with our sinful misappropriation of what sin is and of who is guilty of it. For the answer to that last question is we all are. For again, sin is not a list of things some people do and some people don't. Instead, sin is that within us which impairs all of us. That which leads all of us astray. That which daily frustrates the best efforts of all of us to live lives that accord with the way of Jesus Christ. And thus sin is that which therefore makes necessary the ever on offer and ever sufficient grace of Jesus Christ bestowed on all of us. Dear family, the psalmist is right. Our sin is always before God, whether we call it sin or not, and whether we bring it before God or not. The psalmist is right about that. But here's where the psalmist is right, too. And this is among the most counterintuitive truths in the world. 
when the psalmist says that God approves of a contrite spirit and explains that confession is that which restores unto him a sense of joy and completeness, the psalmist is here showing us that the most liberating thing that we can do as sinful human beings is to confess our sin before God. For only here, the psalmist is saying, only through the practice of confession and absolution, only through the practice of contrition and forgiveness can we find the wholeness we're so desperately pining for. Only through this, the psalmist is saying, can we have our joy restored. Think about it this way. One of the biggest problems with the Disney ethic is that if we are indeed our own arbiters of right and wrong, and if we really are each a law unto ourselves, it then necessarily follows that only we alone can grant ourselves forgiveness and absolution. Do you follow that? And thus, every time we suddenly feel like maybe we're not living in accordance with our best life, every time we suddenly feel like maybe we have done something wrong, and maybe we're not on the right course, every time we suddenly feel this way, in other words, all the time, only we in this view can grant ourselves forgiveness for the fact. Only we in this view can grant ourselves absolution for such feelings of guilt. Only we in this view can restore unto ourselves the joy of our salvation. And the only problem with this, and it's a pretty big one, is that we simply aren't capable of doing that. It doesn't work. I close with a story. A few weeks ago, Ada told me that while at school, she'd had to say something about each person in her family. She told me that she'd talked about mommy and about sissy and about brother. And she said that when it came time for her to say something about me, she said, and I told them that my daddy is a pastor and that he works really hard. And she told me this as an intended compliment. But here's what I heard in it. I heard that I'm away from her so much. On the phone so much. And in meetings so much. And gone so much. That she has conflated my job with busyness. She didn't say my daddy's a pastor and he takes me for walks. She didn't say my daddy's a pastor and he plays dolls with me in the playroom. She didn't say my daddy's a pastor and he takes me for ice cream on Saturdays. She said my daddy's a pastor and he works really hard. 
Well, this crushed me. Because, dear family, this wasn't a matter of my being inattentive to my daughter one time. This wasn't a matter of my making the mistake of prioritizing work over family one afternoon. This wasn't a mere miscalculation. No, this was consistent, sustained inattention to that which matters to me most. On account of insecurity about not doing enough as a pastor, and likewise on account of simply finding it easier to talk on my phone or work on my laptop, or agree to yet another meeting than simply be there for the daily needs and demands of my own children. In other words, this was not an ontological limitation. It was sin. Singular, capital S. And here's the important takeaway from this story. It wasn't just Ada and my family against whom I'd been trespassing. And it certainly wasn't against just my best and most truest self. No, in forsaking my responsibilities as a father, I was trespassing against the one who blessed me with the opportunity to be a father in the first place. You follow, I was guilty not just before Ada, not just before myself, but guilty also and most importantly before God. And what's more, I felt the guilt. And the only available opportunity for absolution the only available route to finding liberation from it was to come before God with a broken and contrite spirit, confessing my sin and asking forgiveness. Do you follow what I'm saying? The constraint of confession was and is the only path to liberation. That is the counterintuitively liberating power of a contrite spirit. For as the psalmist says, a broken and contrite spirit, O God, you will not turn away. When you pray, pray like this, Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. Forgive us, Father, as we forgive others. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sin. Dear family, Barney Fife isn't right about a whole lot. But he was right about this. Sin is something we can never talk too much about. Because as people who follow the crucified Christ, 
We are not a people who were called into being by cheap grace. We are instead a people who were called into being by the costliest grace of all. And make no mistake, that grace is always on offer. But by definition, accepting it requires our acknowledgement of how little we deserve it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. And so this entire sermon, simply to say, that acknowledgement of our need for grace is confession. And that confession is an external constraint. But that external constraint leads to inner liberation. And so would that we'd all be willing to daily come before the one who alone is infallible and good, confessing with broken hearts and contrite spirits, God be merciful to us, all of us, sinners. Knowing that when we do, every time we do, the one who created us and loves us and knows us by name will always be there to forgive us, always eager to restore unto us the joy of our salvation. All God's people said, Amen.